This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, thank you guys. Open your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 9. We are finishing our series Renew this morning, which has been on, on Nehemiah. So enjoyed this series. And today we're going to, to wrap that up. We're going to look at, verse, at chapters 9 and 10. And I'm going to be reading much of chapter 9 as we go through. And so I'm not going to read it now. We'll, we'll walk through it very carefully throughout the course of the message. While you're finding your place in God's Word, let me tell you kind of where we're going to be going in the next couple of months. So next Sunday, we get back to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we will be in Mark chapter 10. We'll spend a couple of weeks in chapter 10 of Mark, and uh, long about that time, it's, it's hard to believe. This is going to be time to start thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, and so we'll have some special messages that will be related to, uh, to Thanksgiving and, uh, of course, to the Christmas season, and then we're, when, in January, we're going to begin chapter 11 of Mark, which is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and from the beginning of the year through Easter, we're going to finish up the series on Mark on Easter Sunday with resurrection, okay, and so that's kind of where we're going to be going uh, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead, but today uh, we're going to finish up Nehemiah. And so I want to pray and also let's remember our students and their leaders. If you look around today, you see a lot of those uh, folks are, that would normally be here missing. We've got 50 people that went on our student retreat. And so, uh, so thankful for what God is doing in our youth ministry, our student ministry. And uh, I can't wait to give a couple of girls uh, a hug when they get back today. I don't know what I'm going to do when they leave for college because... Uh, I miss them when they go away for the weekend, but um, let's be praying that God is going to take the, the, what's been sown in His Word in the hearts of our students this weekend, and that it will just be fruit that will remain uh, for, for them, and that God's going to bring fruit that remains in our lives today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for this time together to worship you, and as we do meet together now, we are mindful of our students and all that's been taking place in their lives over the course of this weekend on their, their fall retreat, and we pray that you would take the seeds of your precious word that have been sown in their lives this weekend, and that they would look back on this weekend as utterly transformational, that you would take the, the seed of your word and bring forth fruit that would, that would remain, fruit that abides in the lives of these students. And we thank you so much for the wonderful student ministry that we have here and children's ministry and those who just work so hard in the lives of young people. We thank you now for your word. As we prepare to study it, we thank you for the, the way that you have really uh, blessed our time together in Nehemiah. And as we finish that up today... And we think about what it means to consecrate ourselves to you, that your Holy Spirit would just do a work in our lives 
today and then through us as we go forth into the mission field. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his book about college basketball, uh, A March to Madness, the writer John Feinstein tells about a, a day when Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski addressed his team in the locker room the day after a very tough, close loss. And he says this, Krzyzewski didn't rant or rave as he spoke. He didn't even raise his voice very much. He didn't need to. Yesterday was a bad day, he said. It wasn't a bad day because we lost, but because of the way we lost. Now, I know you guys will say, hey, we were one play away from winning the game. That's right, you were. But what you don't understand is that there were 25 times during the game when you could have made that one play. See, here's the problem. We've learned to accept not being very good. He turned around, took a blue magic marker, and drew a line across the board on the wall. This is what I'm talking about, he said, pointing to the line. None of you has ever drawn this line and said, that's it. That's as far as you go. You have to kill me to cross this line. Well, you know, coaches like Mike Krzyzewski are successful because... They get players to draw that line, <laughs> to, to give all of themselves, to, to, to make that total commitment, to, to consecrate themselves. And that's what we're going to see here in chapters 9 and 10 of Nehemiah, that the people of Jerusalem, are, they're going to draw that line. In fact, they're going to put their name on the line, and they're, they're going to offer all of themselves to the Lord. That's what we're called to do as well. The Apostle Paul tells us in, in Romans 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul says here, in view of the mercy of God, in view of everything that God has done for us in the gospel, what is the, the logical, rational response to that? It's to place yourself on the altar, to consecrate yourself to Him. He makes it even more specific than that in Romans six thirteen when he says... Do not present your members to sin, members there being parts of your body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, he's saying there that, that from head to toe, okay, our, our brain, our eyes, all the way down to our feet, that we are to offer every part of ourselves, every part of our body to the Lord as instruments for His glory. And we're to consecrate ourselves and every part of ourselves to the Lord. Why? Because it's in view of His mercy. Because of what God has done for us in the gospel. This is the only rational, logical response to what He has done. is to consecrate ourselves to Him.
Now, let's look at the context here. Let's set the context for what's going on in Nehemiah 9. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now this is really interesting because last week we saw that they entered into a period of feasting. And now they're entering into a time of fasting. And there are times for both of those things in a godly life. But on this particular day, they're entering into this time of, 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 of fasting and, and kind of mourning for the sins that they have committed, not to sort of wallow in that, but in order to look forward to their future. Because they know that in order to move forward into the future that God has for them, that they have to come to terms with where they've been. And so what we're going to see in chapter 9 is, is a review. It's a prayer, but it's also a review of Israel's history. And in a way, it's our history as well. Now, the first thing that we see here is that consecration involves adoration and confession. Throughout this prayer that we're going to see in chapter 9, you see this mingling of adoration of God and confession of our sin. It begins in verse 6. Let's look at that together. They pray, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This prayer begins with creation. They praise God as the one who made all of the, 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 the sun and the moon and the stars and the, the, the sea and the earth and everything that is on it. And he did it brilliantly. This week is just as I got to this part of the sermon. I went out for a, a run and as I did it was a beautiful day and I was blown away by the colors that I was seeing around me as these trees were changing colors and just the, the different hues of, of red that were popping out and the orange that was popping out and the, uh, the green of the grass and just the blue of the sky and the way that it just seemed to all mingle together that day. And I was, I was thinking, you know, every single one of these leaves that I'm seeing is, is more brilliant than anything that human beings could engineer or produce. God's creation is miraculous. 
and remarkable, and he deserves praise for every bit of it. And so this prayer here begins at the beginning of the Old Testament with creation. And then what do we see in verse 7? They pray, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. See, what happened in Genesis after creation? We marred God's creation, right, by our sin. And, and so God's perfect world became a broken world. But then what did God do? Instead of giving up on us, what did He do? God took a man, Abraham, and He said, through this man, I'm going to create a special people. And through this one family of people, I'm going to bring blessing to all the families of people. And I'm going to begin to restore the brokenness of my world through this special people, through Israel. And so look at Genesis uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But then Israel becomes slaves. They become slaves in Egypt. But then, what does God do as, the, as we continue walking through the course of the Old Testament? Then what does God do as they are enslaved in Egypt? Verses 9 through 12. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters." By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God was faithful to deliver His people from slavery. He heard their cries. He saw their tears and He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And then what did He do? At Mount Sinai... He met with them, met with their leader Moses, and he gave them his law. Verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. God met with them at Mount Sinai to give them His law, to teach them how to live, to teach them how to flourish as human beings. 
Because you know what? God's commandments are always for our good. They're so that we can flourish as people. And so his giving of his, the giving of his law was yet another act of God's mercy. But how did they respond to God's mercy? Verses 16 and 17. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They said, we want to go back to our slavery. We miss Egypt. We miss being Pharaoh's slaves. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to our slavery. Who, who does that? Who says that? We do every time that we sin. Every time we sin. But how does God respond to this? Verse 17, again, the latter part of it. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. I mean, this is just incredible patience and mercy and grace on God's heart. But how did they respond to His patience and mercy and grace? Verses 18 and 19. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. I mean, after all of God's mercy and delivering them from slavery in Egypt, and they turn away from him, turn away from his law, not only does he not forsake them then, but even after they make an idol, a golden calf, and they praise the golden calf and honor him for bringing them out of Egypt. What does God do? Well, he does discipline them. He, 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 he disciplines them by having them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But even then, God did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verses 20 and 21. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And what happens after forty years of wandering in the wilderness? They enter the promised land. Verses 23 and following. You multiplied their children. 
as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness, your great goodness. I mean, it was just so many blessings in the promised land. Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. But eventually, what did they do? They took all of that for granted. And they turned away from God once again. Verses 26 through 28. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Now this is the period of the judges that we studied a year ago. And do you remember the pattern that we saw in Judges? It was disobedience followed by discipline followed by deliverance. The people would, would disobey. God in His love would have to discipline them and they would become oppressed and under foreign powers and so forth. And then what did God do? God would hear their cry and He would raise up a judge, a deliverer, a savior. To, to, to restore them. And you see this pattern over and over and over again in Judges of disobedience followed by discipline, followed by deliverance, followed by disobedience, followed by discipline, followed by uh, deliverance over and over again. And then what happens after the period of the Judges? They say, they say to God, we want a king. Give us a king. And so God does that, and God begins to give them kings to, to lead them. And not only does He give them kings to lead them, God continually gives them prophets to warn them. But what happens? They sum it all up in verses 32 and 33. Now therefore our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, 
our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Now, it is when we get to that point in our lives that spiritual health and healing can begin. When we take an honest look at who we are and an honest look at who God is, when we stop making any excuses for our sins, but just get brutally honest in confession of our sinfulness and a recognition of God's faithfulness. It's when we get to that point that healing can begin. We're not looking outside of ourselves. We're not blaming anybody else. We're not blaming God. But we're just acknowledging our sin and we're praising God for His faithfulness. Now, not only at that point, though, must we see the depth and the width of our sins, but we need to see the depth and the width of the Savior's grace and forgiveness of sin. Think about what's happening here in chapter 9. What are they doing? They're, they're, They're adding up all of their sins, right? I mean, they're making a tally, right? They're looking back over the course of all of their history And they're tallying up. They're adding up their sins. Think about if we could do that. I mean, think about if we could go back to the beginning of our lives. Suppose you could go back to the beginning of your life and you could somehow remember every sin. Every sin of commission, every sin of omission. And you you made a tally. You just added them all up. Now just... Just think, just think of the accumulated weight of your sins. And, and imagine that accumulated weight of your sins just hovering over you and threatening to crush you. But of this, instead of descending on you, the accumulated weight of your sins descends on Jesus. And Jesus takes all the weight of your sin upon Himself. And He bears it. He bears it all. Everyone on the cross, He bears them in your place so that they don't, they don't crush you. They crush Him. That is the heart of the Gospel. That's the gospel. Now, if you are not a Christian here today, 
and you feel the weight of your sin about to crush you, then look to Jesus. Look to the one who bore your transgressions and look to the one who was crushed for your iniquities. And if you are a Christian today, look to Jesus. Look to the one who bore your sins and who was crushed for your iniquities. Look to Him and live your life as a Christian out of His mercy. Out of His mercy. Live your life celebrating the fact that you are forgiven. That those sins, past, present, and future, are indeed under the blood of Christ. Live your life celebrating the fact that you've been forgiven and that you have been, you are accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done for you and that you've been adopted by Him as a beloved son or daughter. Live your life out of that mercy and grace and let that mercy and grace transform the way that you look at life and the way that you treat other people. And in view of all of that mercy and grace, consecrate yourself. Consecrate all that you are and all that you have to Him. It's the only logical response to the mercy that we have received. Now, that consecration is exactly what we see these people doing from the last verse of chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10. They take action. And that's the second thing that we see here. Consecration includes action. And we see the action that they take in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, they say, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. We are going to put our name on the line. We're going to draw this line and we're going to say, this is it. We are consecrating ourselves to you and we are, we're going to make this just, just concrete by, by putting our names down. And when you look at chapter 10, look in your Bible. I mean, what do you see here throughout most of chapter 10? Names, right? Name after name after name. These people put their names on the dotted line and they say, Lord, we are yours. We consecrate ourselves to you. Now look, there's something powerful when we take action steps for the Lord that involve faith. You know, that's, that's why something like baptism is so important because it's one thing to, you know, to say that you've become a Christian. But it's another thing to, to step forward and to be baptized because then you're taking a concrete step and you're burning your bridges. And you're saying before God and you're saying before people, I mean, this is who I am. It's that, it's that public 
action that is just so powerful. And God uses that. I'll never forget the day that I was in a rickety building in the nation of Bangladesh. And the translator at this particular conference where we were holding this place for these people in this Islamic nation had been late to the conference because he had been attending the funeral of a Christian who had been martyred in another part of the country. And, and the next day, we're in this rickety old building, and there are probably about 15 to 20 people who were sitting there on the floor, and they were people that had come to faith in Christ, and they were turning to Jesus, and from the false religion that they had grown up in, and, and this would, they knew what this would mean. They knew that at the very least it would mean that they would be ostracized from families and that they would spend the rest of their lives suffering severe persecution and they knew that it might mean death. And I'll never forget the moment when the person who was speaking to them and preparing them for baptism asked them the question, are you willing to die for Christ? And these men, every one of them, forced, raised their hands and said a forceful, Yes! We are willing to die for Jesus. That's consecration. You know, this is, this is why something like church membership is really important. Because it's one thing to attend a church. It's another thing to put your name on the line and to say, this is my church family. I am committed to this church family. I'm accountable to this body of believers. It's one thing to kind of date the church. It's another thing to get married, to make a commitment. And God is worthy of our commitments. And I want to tell you something. God blesses commitments. When they're made in faith, God blesses that. When we act in faith, God acts, just does. I, was, I heard about a church planner in, in D.C., and um, they had started this church up there, and they needed a drummer for their worship services, and they had gone months without one. And it just seemed like nobody could nobody was showing up that could play the drums and they needed a drummer and so the pastor said one thursday i just decided to put faith to my prayers and i went out and the church at this point was just struggling for every penny that they could get they were they were week to week and he said but i went out and i bought a drum set and it was a really good drum set. And so Sunday, here we go. We had, we had a shiny new drum set. Didn't have a drummer, but we had a great looking drum set. At that point, nobody had stepped forward. There was nobody even on the radar screen that could play drums. He went out and bought the drum set on Thursday. On Sunday, their drummer showed up. And he was really good. He played in the Marine Corps band. And he was great. And this guy was saying, look, 
Signs follow decisions that we make. They really do. You know, God, somehow we see God acting in power and intervening in our lives when we take concrete steps of faith. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. Okay? And so God blesses action. Okay, when we step out in faith for Him... I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.